Welcome to Reimagining Justice, exploring Texas innovations in mental health, a podcast by the Texas Judicial Commission on Mental Health. Join us as we sit down with mental health heroes from across the state and hear their personal stories, experiences, and insights into the intersection of mental health and justice. From Amarillo to Austin, Midland to McAllen, and everywhere in between, we're highlighting innovative ideas happening throughout the state that you can bring back to your own community. You'll get to know the leaders driving change and creating a more equitable and compassionate system for all. Welcome to Reimagining Justice, the Judicial Summit on Mental Health Edition. So we are live in Galveston right now, our sixth annual conference. And we decided what better place to get some guests all in the same place than at the summit. So this year, one of our keynote speakers was Judge Stephanie Sawyer. She is a judge in the Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas, and she's also the founder and board chair of the Sentencing Foundation. So that's our innovation we're going to be talking about today. And we have two more judges with us today, and I will let them introduce themselves. I'm Denise Hernandez, and I'm the judge of County Court at Law Number 6 in Travis County, Texas. I'm Caroline Turner. I'm a judge-elect in Philadelphia, starting on the bench in January, 1st Judicial District, Pennsylvania. Judge Hernandez didn't have to travel quite as far as our other two judges here, so welcome in from Philadelphia. Welcome to Texas. Thank you. I appreciate you. Judge Sawyer, you were our speaker yesterday, and people loved your presentation. Glad to hear it. How did you get started in this work? Well, interestingly enough, when I hit the bench, it, it was never my intention, right, to create a program that was designed to reduce mass incarceration. Instead, I crisscrossed the city of Philadelphia multiple times, campaigning to become a judge and making a promise that I was going to be fairness upon which every Philadelphian could, could rely on. And so I had to keep that promise. You know, my mother taught me you're all, you, a person is only as good as their word. And so when I hit the bench, I did not know what I was going to do. What I knew was I was not going to do. I was not going to feed the beast that is mass incarceration simply out of habit. And so I started from that place, knowing what I wasn't going to do. And then I began to just in a very ad hoc fashion, certain cases at their disposition at the sentencing phase, right? Certain cases just screamed out to me that, oh my God, if this defendant had this particular resource and this particular issue addressed, they won't be back in front of me. And so it just screamed out something untraditional, and that is give them some resource and have some form of follow-up to see whether or not that assisted them. And it was an outstanding kind of response, right? And so I was appointed in 2014. When you're appointed as a judge, you still have to win an election to get your own term. And so I was a bit preoccupied being a single parent of two, closing down a a 20-year practice, almost 20-year practice, giving away your clients and accepting an appointment. So I was a bit distracted to be able to financially take care of myself and my children. It wasn't that much that I did from 2014, 2016. It was just a couple of cases. And then when I noticed how well it actually helped people to reimagine their lives in 2016, when I, well, I won in 2015, but in 2016, when I hit the Court of Common Pleas bench, I could focus on looking at, well, what is it 
about the criminal justice system that maintains a system of mass incarceration. Because everybody knows the proliferation of mass incarceration happened in the 80s and 90s. It went from like about here to all the way up here, right? And here we are in 2023, maintaining essentially those same numbers. And so what is it about the system that we're doing that does that? And when I looked at it, I said, oh my goodness, in every typical case where a person is either found guilty or pleads guilty, they face a sentencing judge. And when they face that sentencing judge, typically they sentence them for probation and off to a probation officer they go, or incarceration and off to the Department of Correction they go, 97% or so get out, and then off to a parole officer they go, and if they have a probation thereafter, ultimately back to a probation officer they go again. And the next time the judge that actually sentenced that person sees them, is when probation and parole are so frustrated, they opine revocation, or they've caught a new case, or they've caught a new conviction. So the next time the judge that sentenced you sees you, it's time to sentence you again. And that, my friends, is how you maintain a system of mass incarceration, number one. And number two, that is how the trust chasm between ordinary citizens and the criminal justice system continues to explode and get larger and larger and larger. And so when I saw that, and I realized in ad hoc fashion, the, the assistance that were given to the defendants that I sentenced in between 14 and 16, that was when I realized, ah, okay, that's what I'm gonna do in my courtroom. Number one, everyone that I sentence will also be supervised under my stewardship. Yes, probation and parole are there and they're supposed to help with the supervision, but they're not in charge of the stewardship of it. They are not to interpret your order. They are there to help the judge supervise in the way the judge wants to have that person supervised. The other issue is cookie cutter justice is no justice at all. You can't just apply general principles to individuals and think that's going to work because clearly it doesn't. And if you think it does, well, how well is that working for you so far? Right. At that point from 2016 to 2018, we did trial and error. We figured out how do we get the status listings done that doesn't overwhelm the judge? How do we get a network of reentry resources that are cost free? Because, of course, those in front of us in the courtroom, they don't have any money. Money is always an issue. So they have to be nonprofit organizations or governmental agencies where funding is not an issue. So how do you get a network of resources? And then how do you get the protocols and standard operating procedures on how to do that? And so from 2016 to 2018, we did that. We didn't even have a name for the program until the end of 2017, early 2018. And we realized the name is what we do, resource-based sentencing and supervision. So that was the name and that was how we put that together. By 2018 to 2020, things were going really well in our courtroom. We had scores of parents in the background with tears in their eyes, mouthing thank you and talking about how their loved ones have changed. Defendants saying, this is the longest I've stayed sober. This is the longest I've stayed at a jail. This is the first time I had an apartment of my own. Like these are the things that we were hearing routinely. This is the first time I actually figured I could actually go to college because you made them first get the high school diploma. And then you say, okay, what's the next step? It was transformative right in my very eyes and warm fuzzy after warm fuzzy. It became contagious. I couldn't do anything else. And somewhere around 2020, I started to get deflated behind the feeling that it was working so well in my courtroom. The deflated feeling was understanding my place in the sun, right? I'm just one judge. I'm one of 20 or 30 judges that operate in the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is the first judicial district of Pennsylvania, which is one of 197 judicial districts in one state that doesn't include the federal system. So I could run this program till I'm blue in the face and it would never move the needle on mass incarceration, nor would it shrink that trust gap 
between ordinary citizens and the criminal justice system. So I had to figure out how can I get this program in every criminal courtroom, state and federal. And so after two years, getting the right board together and the right procedures together, we had to get a vehicle that was the logistical support for the program and getting it into every courtroom. And that is what the Sentencing Foundation is. The Sentencing Foundation is the logistical support that allows us to get it into other courtrooms. And Sentencing Foundation, by the way, is how we wound our way to Judge Hernandez as our anchor judge in Texas. And how by the end of this year, we will be at least, at least, probably more, but at least six jurisdictions because we're in two jurisdictions now and we have four judges that are awaiting their binders to start it. So before we even deal with the judges that we are very happy to offer this program to at this summit, which by the way, we've had an extremely good responses here. So that's why I say I don't know by the end of the year how many places will be. But as of today, we do know that four jurisdictions are awaiting their binders. So there will be six jurisdictions um, that will be utilizing resource-based sentencing and supervision. And with the help of the judges that we currently have and the excitement that we currently have and the results that we're currently getting, we know this is going to be something that catches fire very soon. The problem of mass incarceration, of course, we all know about it. But before you became a judge, what were you doing in your career that really led you to say, this is something that I want to make a change in? Let me just tell you this. It's quite basic. As, as an African-American woman in, in this country and my life experiences and the people that I know, the terrible examples of how the criminal justice system has not kept its mantra of creating and dispensing justice was something intrinsic in me before I even decided to go to law school and be a lawyer. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer when I was nine years old that stemmed from a situation of injustice. Those of you that aren't familiar with Philadelphia and familiar with Rizzo Cop Days, that was what I grew up in, a very serious situation that happened with my brother who was simply as my, I'm a single parent raised by a single parent. And my mother, while she was at Wharton and my older siblings were at Catholic school, which only Lord knows how she managed that. But my brother had permission from the principal to leave early so that he could go to a little steak shop job that he had called Sunny Honey. Still remember the name of the shop. Mm-hmm. And he left school at Colonel Doherty and was on the bus waiting to go to work so that he can work this part-time job and kind of put it into the pot that helped my mother take care of us. And unfortunately, the bus was on the wrong corner and everybody in that corner got swooped. And we didn't know where he was. Four hours, everybody was upset. We finally did find him, essentially, when they found out that he was someone that was just trying to go to work, right? They had already beat him him up a little bit. And so they dropped him off in a random neighborhood down in South Philly. And he called us scared at 11, 12 o'clock at night. Like I said, I was only nine years old, so some of the details might be blurred at this point, but that's essentially what happened. And I just remembered how everyone felt helpless, hopeless, scared that he might be dead. That was when I realized I may not agree with the law, but I'm going to learn it. I'm going to figure out exactly what laws govern me, and I'm not going to feel powerless against the system anymore. And so that is what really started my, my, my thirst for being able to fight for for justice and fairness out of an experience that happened myself. And one that you've carried throughout your career and now are bringing to lots of other places. You mentioned it's great to make a difference in one place, but to make a difference elsewhere, you 
got to spread your message. So how did you start connecting with other judges across the U.S. to bring the Sentencing Foundation outside of Philadelphia? Well, those that know me know that I won't be quiet. (laughs) So just talking to different people, we utilized some of the resources that we had in Philadelphia, the national resources, like, for example, the Urban League, right? They were in our resource network. And so I reached out to them to speak to the National Urban League. And we did a presentation for the National Urban League. And I asked those folks, hey, are you all working with any judges that you think might be like-minded? Well, that's what brought me to Judge Hernandez. I also was working with a Reform Alliance, which is a national organization about reform. And one of the partners over there that I spoke with, Britt Smith, who also worked with folks, said, hey, we visited these judges and those judges. And then we started reaching out to organizations. And speaking of Judge Hernandez, I spoke with Ms. Moran at On Point, who connected me to the Judicial Summit. And then there's another national organization, Power Corps, that has a location in Boston and that they connected me to Harvard Law Professor that is at an equity table in Boston. So I'll be speaking to judges in Boston. And so just speaking to any and everyone interested in moving the needle on mass incarceration and shrinking the trust gap between ordinary citizens and the criminal justice system so that real justice can actually have an opportunity of occurring, right? just going and blowing in all of those directions. And now my chambers get called with, hey, will Judge Sawyer speak here? Will Judge Sawyer talk here? And there's 24 hours in the day, but if I can fit you in my calendar, I'll be there. Mm -hmm. Judge Hernandez, how did you get connected with Judge Sawyer? And tell me about bringing this to Texas and how you've started implementing it in your Travis County courtroom. My court leads a youth diversion program called the Transformative Youth Justice Program. And so I started reaching out to nonprofits that were grassroots to provide support to the participants in the program, which is how I got connected to the Austin Area Urban League, to Mary Moran from the On Point Reentry. And they said, you have to meet this amazing judge out of Philadelphia named Judge Sawyer. And they told me a little bit about her story and her lived experience, and that resonated so much with me. Even hearing Judge Sawyer speak right now, I, I can't help but get emotional because So much of our lived experience is similar, and I think we are drawn to this work because we have had injustices in our lives that we are dedicated to eradicating within our system. And so we jumped on a Zoom, and in that very first Zoom meeting, (laughs) it was just clear that there was chemistry. We had similar visions, similar values, but most importantly, we were not afraid to shake up the system and be loud loud about it. And I think the hardest thing for me being a judge out of Texas, and I'm fairly young, I'm 36 years old. I'm one of the youngest judges in Travis County. I'm the first openly gay woman to serve on a county court bench. And so with that comes a lot of, I think, hesitation or fear that you're going to speak on a specific issue and people may not agree with you. And so you have to really be strong in saying, am I okay with walking into a space, standing up for what's right, and not be liked for it. And absolutely, that is the right thing to do. But as a young judge, when you get to meet someone like Judge Sawyer, to see the path forward, to talk through how to navigate when you get pushed back, how do you use articulate argument to bring people on board, even if we aren't on the same side of whatever the issue may be, all of our common goal is to ensure justice is happening within our courtroom, that fair access is happening within the courtroom. And to do that, we have to ensure that we're centering people's humanity, right? That we're centering people's traumas so that we can get to the core issues. It was fairly easy after that Zoom call to say, 
whatever you need. I'm here for it. And we continue to meet on a weekly basis, talking about the program, reaching out to other judges in Texas and bringing them on board and creating a network where we can begin to just support each other through this work because it's a collective effort. How much have you implemented of this program into your courtroom and how much is still left to be done? I immediately began implementing it once I got my binder and I began implementing it in two forms, one in our pretrial supervision and in our post-sentencing probation supervision. And those are two different things. Typically, folks are coming in front of me if they have a bond violation. And typically what systems do, and I say systems because this is how it's traditionally done in most courtrooms, is that there's a warrant issued that brings that person in front of you. And I'm completely against that notion because there's no reason we need to be bringing someone in for a small violation when we can easily issue a summons, send a letter, have them come in. Because we all know that an arrest takes people out of their lives. It it literally shakes up their stability, oftentimes ends up in leading to them losing a job. And that's not our goal. Our goal is to ensure their stability, to increase public safety. We have to ensure that we're not completely destabilizing people's lives. And so what I've done is instead of just issuing warrants for people who have violated on bond, I'm sending out letters and summons asking them to come to my court. And I'm not really talking about the violation as I am talking about what is going on in your life that I can support you with. What is happening that is that is leading to the violation? The violation itself is an effect of a cause, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I've done is I've taken essentially the system that we found out of the Sentencing Foundation, the, the guide, which is how do we get to the, the issue so we can provide the resources to address the issue? And that's been really helpful. And my court handles misdemeanors misdemeanor criminal cases, what I've learned a lot of times is that it's a miscommunication that they just don't fully understand the bond compliance. And a conversation is easy enough to address the issue. Or if it's a serious violation, for example, like a alcohol violation, oftentimes when I have the conversation, I learn that a loved one has passed or a significant trauma has just happened in their life. And it's a great opportunity for me to say, How can I connect you to a trauma therapist? How can I connect you to therapy? How can I connect you to a resource that's going to help you address the core issue so that you aren't continuing to violate, right? And so it's about being really intentional with how we are supervising within the courtroom. And on the other end, which is probation, uh, when someone's violating on probation, the same thing. Typically, systems will send out warrants. I don't do that. I bring in folks through a summons. And then I say, what's happening? And then we create plans using the resource sentencing binder. And we, we create systems where we connect them with our partners. And I say, hey, I want, I'm going to check back in with you in a month. And I want to see how you're doing. Right. And I don't use language that's punitive because it's, it's not helpful. I'm not there to shame. We can hold people accountable through compassion. And I've learned that giving compassion and really seeing people in their humanity actually increases their likelihood of success. And where I can see that we can continue to implement the Sentencing Foundation system and strategy is even before we get to sentencing, when we receive a recommendation from the state, bringing all the parties to the bench and discussing, are we implementing the core issues or are these conditions added only being put on because that's what you've always done? Is there something that we can add here that's truly going to address the core issue? And allowing us to be collective 
in how we want to see this individual be successful. The last thing we want to do is set them on a probation that's only going to lead to failure. And so that requires a conversation with the individual with the pending case. And we need to get them invested in in the success of their probation plan. And I think that absolutely requires us to recognize that sometimes we end up in robot mode in the criminal justice system, that we're just giving out conditions and then sending people on their way instead of taking a moment to really see people and say, I see you, what do you need? How can I support you? And not throwing them away the moment they mess up. We're human. We're going to mess up. Mm-hmm. How do we support them through the moments of hardship that they'll experience? When did you implement this? When did we meet? Wow. Now I can't. It's been, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it's I want to say maybe it was around the summer, yeah, June. It was. We it began was. implementing. I've only been on, on the bench since January. Okay. And so around the summertime is when we began implementing the strategies that we see in the Sentencing Foundation. And even in just that short amount of time, what is the reception banner? What kind of changes have you seen? You can see that people with a pending case, when they come into the courtroom, how much fear they have. Mm-hmm. And the moment they step in front of me and have a discussion with me, I can see at how at ease they feel. And they end up sharing a lot with me, right, about what they're experiencing. And I can have a real discussion with them. And we're building trust in those moments Uh, and we're building a reinvestment into people and ensuring their success. And so the reception has been amazing. I've seen a lot of moments of people just having a great deal of distrust and trauma in the courtroom. And I acknowledge that the Mm -hmm. moment they come to the bench. And I know that because I grew up with a lot of my family being impacted by the criminal justice system. And I vividly remember my family going into courtrooms and being scared and feeling timid and dimming their light, right? Almost as if they're not human in that space. And so I make sure to acknowledge, I say, I know it's hard getting here and I know it can be hard being in a courtroom. And so I just want to thank you for your presence. And even something as small as that makes a really big difference. And so I'm still new, but I can see the impact. And I know that with the guidance and support of Judge Sawyer and the uh, Sentencing Foundation, I know that we'll continue to make a big impact in Travis County. Well, I think that's going to be very exciting. And (laughs) (laughs) are there other Texas counties or courtrooms doing something similar? Yeah. So we've connected Judge Sawyer to some judges out of San Antonio and judges in Houston. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was a lot of Texas judges here right. uh, and some folks out of Fort Bend County. And it's it's amazing to see that because if you're from Texas, you know that we live in the, the big counties. So to hear a judge from Fort Bend, which is a smaller county, mm-hmm. say, yes, I'm on board. It means that we're doing good work. It means that Judge Sawyer's vision is truly connecting with folks throughout all jurisdictions, because I think at the end of the day, we all want to ensure that true justice is happening in the courtroom. And how do we begin to do that in a way that's really thoughtful and intentional? And we're all yearning to do that. Judge Sawyer, throughout when you started using this model years ago until now in your courtrooms, and of course now you're expanding. Tell me about the recidivism rate or the effect it's had on mass incarceration. What positive impacts have you seen? Well, being quite candid, this was not a program that I, mother may I, if you will, right? So the judges that we're looking for are like-minded judges, number one, but as Judge Hernandez alluded to, they're judges that have the gumption and the guts to not mother may I the program. One of the byproducts of not mother may I the program is that we didn't have the kind of funding 
mm -hmm. get the empirical data that I could with certainty and clarity answer that question. But episodically, I can tell you without a doubt, there are folks, particularly folks that I've ordered to trauma counseling that have come back with a burden lifted off of them and their demeanor, just transformative, right? I don't want to quote any numbers because I don't have numbers to quote, but I can tell you without a doubt, because of the intrinsic distrust that the general public might have for the criminal justice system, you generally will not see people that are under a judge's supervision show up in their courtroom and they're not on the list saying, hey, judge, something happened. I'm really upset. Can you help me? Just that action happening on a regular basis in my courtroom tells me that in my courtroom, we are shrinking the trust gap. That tells me that not only are they reimagining their life, but they're looking at a courtroom to actually bring solutions and justice as opposed to historically what it has been known to do. And so the best way I can answer that question is it's just obvious, but it's not a scientific assurity as a byproduct of not going to the first judicial district and asking, hey, will you commission a study to see what's happening to my recidivism rates? Hey, can you give me all the data and give me a statistician to, and don't get me wrong, the Sentencing Foundation has the logistical support for resource-based sentencing and supervision. Uh, we have some board members that are working on that. George Flowers and, and Al Harrison, you know, those are our Harvard-Yale guys, and they are right now working on ways to quantify what we're doing. But one of the most important things to make sure progress keeps moving forward is I'm a firm believer in everybody staying in their lane, right? This is about a paradigm shift in how judges sentence and supervise that becomes a humane way of being solution-based instead of punishment-based. And we're building people, not more jails. Candidly saying, I don't have any numbers, but I know without a doubt, with every fiber of my being, I know this works. You've mentioned finding like-minded judges. There's a lot of different kinds of judges with different views. Mm -hmm. What would you say to judges or even just people in communities who have concerns that, oh, you're, you're going easy on the criminals or... Couldn't wait for that question. So <laughs> listen, listen, I have to answer it in a couple of ways, right? Way number one is, no, people that keep throwing folks in jail, you're doing the easy thing by throwing people away. Requiring people to do the hard work of reimagining their life and holding them accountable to doing it, right? When you say pull yourself up by the bootstraps knowing you have no boots, we're in the business of passing out boots and making people pull them up. It's not easy to make a person who's been out of school for 10 or 20 years go back and get a high school diploma. It's not easy making them to come back to court to show me that they're tracking progress. Where's your attendance sheet? Did you show up? Did you go to your trauma counselor? Have you been there each and every time? Being subject to potential additional problems if they don't help themselves with the resources that we give. We are removing all of the excuses. Oh, I don't have the money to go to school. Great. Here's a free place you can go get it. I can't get there. Here's a bus pass. Next. And so what I say to people, number one, it's easier to throw them in jail where they don't have to deal with where they're going to live. As they say, three hots and a cot. They get fed 
on the system's back. They get housed on the system's back, albeit in many, many ways and many times, not in a humane fashion, but albeit they don't have to figure out their lives. They let the system take care of them in whatever fashion they take care of them and whatever the rollout is for their children and they're continuing that cycle, right? So number one, it's not easy to reimagine your life. It's not easy to be held accountable to become a productive citizen. So first of all, I say that you're wrong. The judges that say, ah, the sentencing guidelines say you have X, Y, and Z incarceration, boom, go to jail for this period of time. And then just wait for that person to come out in desperation, continue to re-offend, and just wait for the next time you have to sentence them again, right? That's ridiculous. That's the easier road. That's the first thing I say. The second thing is I do not want it to ever be lost. Resource-based sentencing and supervision is not for every person that's in criminal justice involved. Any criminologist will tell you that a very small percentage of those criminal justice involved are so broken that they're sadistic and that they're just going to reap havoc on the rest of us. There is nothing wrong with incarceration. They go to jail. It's mass incarceration that is awfully offensive. And if criminologists say, I think it's somewhere around 7 to 10%, right? But if criminologists say it could be as high as 15%, I'll take that 15%. And that tells me 85% just need help. So that's how I answer that. So if someone's in jail, like you mentioned, they have a place to stay, they, they have food and holding them accountable to say, okay, well, I suggest that you get this treatment or find your housing. If people don't have the funds to do that, I guess, have you seen any pushback? The network of reentry resources is a network of nonprofit organizations. And since they're nonprofit organizations, they're responsible to fund themselves. And so we have an Eddie's house that has comprehensive housing solution. We have Dr. Fontes at Newview that is a trauma counselor. We have Urban League that pays for CDL classes. We have an OIC that pays for, we have Temple Well Program that helps pay for mental health issues as well as GEDs. So you find a network of nonprofit organizations or governmental agencies like social services that already exist for those counties. You find an amalgamation of programs that fund themselves that they're in the business of helping people that have these needs and you match the person to the need. That's how you do it without it costing anybody anything. I see. Okay. So now that you're expanding into different locations, is it about finding resources specific to locations? Absolutely. That... Mm -hmm. And in other words, when I said that there are four jurisdictions that would be San Antonio, Houston, Memphis, Tennessee, and New Rochelle, New York, that are awaiting binders, they're awaiting the Sentencing Foundation team of putting their resource network together so that I can give them their binders and the judge can get started. That's what took Judge Hernandez a while because it took us a few weeks, maybe a month or so, to get her the reentry resource network that's part of the binder so that we can deliver the whole binder to her so she can begin to use the program. You mentioned that by the end of the year, there'll be six, maybe more. Mm -hmm. Jurisdictions. I definitely know that there'll be more, right? Because we've already gotten some judges to, in this summit, right. come to us and say, I'm in. We've already had that happen. What I say six is I'm counting the two that are currently running it and the four that are waiting for their binders. So I know there'll be more than six by the end of this year. Judge Turner, I want to bring you in. So you are a judge elect in Philadelphia. How will you be utilizing some of the practices that 
Judge Sawyer is formed in your courtroom? Well, I actually campaigned on the ideas behind this program. I've campaigned on pre-trial diversion programs where people could get their GEDs or do something really positive so that when they come to the trial phase as an option, because they're not sentenced by that place, but it's a good option as opposed to a high bail that they can't afford or to going waiting, basically doing nothing productive while they're in jail. So there's the whole pre-trial thing that I was interesting with listening with interest to Judge Hernandez talking about, but also the sentencing, because again, nobody's getting a chance to turn their life around while they're sitting festering in a jail, where the conditions are deplorable, where there's overcrowding, where nobody cares about you, where very often you've lost your family and your housing and your job and any self-respect you've had before that. So I was campaigning on all these things and I was I work with a lot of community resources and organizations myself through which I heard about Judge Sawyer's program and met her and of course hit it off immediately. Mm-hmm. Love what she's doing. Sat in her courtroom. Oh my goodness. I've been in lots and lots of courtrooms. I was a public defender for 11 years and I have sat in numerous courtrooms. I have never sat in a courtroom and felt that this was a courtroom where there was so much hope. There was so much trust in Judge Sawyer. There was this atmosphere of relaxation. Everybody knew that Judge Sawyer was trying to find the best way to make them succeed. And the parents were there, the families were there, and it it was extraordinary. I felt so blessed to be in an atmosphere like that where justice was being dispensed in such a loving way. It was incredible for me and I mean I can't wait to get off the edge (laughs) and start doing that myself and having Judge Sawyer as my mentor as I learn how to be a good judge like she is. I offered to come down to this um, summit paying for it myself and everything because I'm so excited about it. Yes that's true. I'm so excited about being able to implement this program. It's going to be great yeah you have a whole crew from Philadelphia. I track registration and I was like we got a lot of people coming from Philadelphia. So. I think there were 13 or 14 of us. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Like that. We're so happy to have y'all. When someone arrives in your courtroom, how do you determine if they're going to be a candidate for this method? You mentioned maybe 15% of people are beyond something okay. like this. So part of the program are the sentencing sheets themselves, right? The sentencing sheets are what we fill out. Are there mental health issues? Do they have children? How far do they go in school? Do they have any employable skills? What's their background? What's the offense gravity score? What's the prior record score? What's the whole picture of that person in front of me, Mm -hmm. right? So a perfect example of somebody that I quickly identified to be part of that, I say seven to 10%, but we'll call it the 15%, was a man in his late 50s, early 60s, that I sentenced to 15 to 30 years in jail and consecute another case to make sure that he never got out. And the reason was he was already serving seven and a half to 15 years for having sexually molested an eight-year-old child. And I would had, had the task of sentencing him for molesting that eight-year-old's sibling. And during the sentencing hearing, we found out that he had been convicted for molesting an adult who had mental health issues, severe ones. And the parents of the siblings 20 or so years before that and the grandmother. So 
when you hear of somebody that's done all of that, I looked him right in his face and I said, sir, I believe in second chances. I believe in resource-based sentencing supervision. I believe that a person's worst day of their life doesn't define who they are. But when that day stretches to a 30-year span, sir, you become that. And I don't have a program for you, sir. You're going to jail. When you understand that this is intended to treat people as the person before you and get the full picture of all that is going on and all of their attenuating deeds and acts, right? A person is merely a compilation of their experiences. When you get to understand the plethora of their experiences, and then you get to add to that the nonverbal cues of body language, tone, inflection, resources around them, meaning do they have family support? Are there people from the community that come and say, no, this person is a great person? You take a look at the whole picture. And if the body of work that is their life shows you that they are that broken and that high probability that the second they get out, that's what they're going to do again. You don't let them out. Simple. But conversely, when you have somebody who has limited criminal convictions, someone who has many good deeds to talk about that can overshadow the bad deeds because a person being a compilation of all of their experiences, whether if they have a hundred experiences and 90 of them are great, and 10 of them are not great. Well, that's someone you got to give them a shot. And again, it's a judgment call. And my goodness, isn't that what we became judges to do? To make a judgment call based upon the whole body of work that is that entire human being and deliver real fairness? And that's how you figure it out. On a case-by-case basis, the problem with putting in policies that you implement General policies that are implemented on individuals is bound to fail. You have to approach that individual for who and what they are and provide assistance. Rather, the assistance is to the citizens at large to not subject them to this person anymore. Or will society be better served by helping to build this person into a decent parent and a decent child and a decent brother and a decent sister. So that's what real justice looks like from my point of view. Judges who are interested in bringing this to their communities, how can they do that? And couldn't wait for that one. You go to the sentencingfoundation.org. That's the sentencingfoundation.org. And my team will reach, just email us if you have questions or If you like what you hear, register as a judge or register as a resource. If you're a resource, we will put you in line with whatever judge in your service area can utilize you. If you're a judge interested in bringing this program to your courtroom, you merely register at the sentencingfoundation.org and you will have a binder of your own complete with a full tutorial. We have monthly virtual Zoom meetings that are just for the judges to talk about their experiences so that we can build a community that supports each other in how to most smoothly implement it in their particular jurisdiction. In the binder that you get, it's got an overview and frequently asked questions. That's probably about 20 or 30 pages, not long at all. We have a quick start that's probably like about five or six pages to tell you how to jump in there and just get started. And then you jump in there and get started. You get on the monthly tutorials and you iron out any wrinkles that occur because this is an ever 
flowing and ever changing, fine tuning, because we're always seeking best practices and best resources. So resources are not just vetted, but they're re-vetted. And that's the process by which this being a system of accountability, because when you have defendants that have to come back at their status listings, the conversation is resource. How's the defendant doing? Are they showing up? Defendant, how's the resource doing? We get a bunch of defendants saying the same bad thing about the same resource. That resource gets snatched because they're obviously not delivering the service that they, they promised to deliver. They're either not respective, they're not responsive, or they're not keeping their word and delivering the service they have to deliver. And every resource has to do those three things. Anybody wants to get involved, whether they're an efficacious resource or a like-minded judge with the gumption to move forward, sentencingfoundation.org. And Judge Hernandez, as someone who just went through this training and, and got your binder, how long did it take? What was it like? It was fairly simple. I want to say within a day of reading the binder, it was really easy to implement the very next day. Wow. It's really about using the knowledge you already know as a judge and then giving the strategy of focusing on a connection of resources as a way to address violations or bond issues or when you're they're coming up for status reports using the questionnaires to check in on how they're doing. So it's a very simple implementation process. It doesn't take a lot of learning because it really is just doing the right thing. And so when it's as easy as that, it's easy to implement. We have a question that we ask all of our guests, which I will ask all three of you. I'll give you a second to think about it because I forgot to warn you in advance. But it is, if you had a billboard that millions of people could see with either a message or an image on it, what would you want to tell the world? I definitely have one. Okay. Be unapologetically yourself in every single space. And I say that because as a queer woman of color, oftentimes we're told in society to hide who we are, hide our identity, dim our light. And I've learned that the more you just step into being authentically yourself in every space, the more you encourage others to do the same, the more you can make a difference in that space. Learn the empathy of putting yourself in the shoes of others. As a judge, as I sit on the bench, I go, wow, what would I need if that happened to me? How would I feel? And what would be the best way for me to move forward if I were in those shoes? So treat people the way you want to be treated because no matter how you look at it, it's gonna happen anyway. You treat people really crappy for a while, don't be surprised when crappy things happen to you. But if you treat people the way you want to be treated, then that comes back to you. I'll go with Brian Stevenson's quote, we're all better than the worst thing we ever did. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much for being here, from traveling near and far to get to Galveston and sharing all this great information with us. We're so excited for our listeners to hear it. So we appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you for having us. Thanks for listening. If you have an innovation in mental health that you'd like to share, send us an email at jcmh at txcourts.gov with the subject line, Reimagining Justice Podcast. Talk to you soon.